Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Welcome to another episode of Radio Astronomy. Today, we're going to take a look at the scourge of every astronomer, light pollution. For decades, those seeking to get a glimpse of the universe have fought against the ever-increasing background glow from artificial light, which blankets the sky, making dimmer objects often impossible to see. But while astronomers are used to dealing with light pollution here on Earth, there is a new source that is beginning to encroach on our view of the night sky, this time coming from above. With mega constellations of tens of thousands of satellites being launched by companies such as SpaceX, Amazon and Boeing, the issue is only set to grow. I'm joined on the podcast today by John Barentine from the International Dark Sky Association, who recently co-authored a study into the effects of these satellites on light pollution. Hello, John. Hello, Ezzy. Thank you for having me today. Pleasure to have you. So you're from the International Dark Sky Association, uh, which is an organisation that aims to protect the night sky from light pollution. But why is light pollution something we need being protected against? We have an increasing understanding of the significance of light pollution as part of the overall threat to our environment that includes other forces like climate change. And we know that in addition to those other environmental stressors, light pollution has an effect on wildlife, ecology, um, potential uh, influence on human health, public safety, energy security, and of course, what most people think about first is the night sky. So it's not simply a matter of astronomy and if we can see the stars at night. We know that it has these wide-ranging effects, and in combination with these other environmental stressors, it's turning out to be a much more serious environmental problem than we once understood. And your paper that you recently helped co-author that looked into a very specific area of light pollution, which came from satellites. How do satellites contribute to light pollution? So to be honest, until only a couple of years ago, we weren't really even thinking about this issue. And uh, it really came to the fore about two years ago with the first launch of the SpaceX Starlink Constellation satellites. Uh, and everybody reacted to that around the world uh, because of the great number of them, to see 60 objects at a time moving across the sky was startling to a lot of people. And it, it, it was a moment of soul searching for us because my organization had been so focused on light pollution on the ground caused by artificial lighting that we had never really thought about whether satellites and other kinds of space debris that were visible in the night sky fell within our remit. And we had kind of a philosophical moment and we decided that, that yes, it does indeed constitute light pollution of the nighttime environment. And to that point, we had really thought of it as seeing these streaks of light moving across the night sky. And so for the astronomers, for example, the streaks running through their images caused loss of data, but it was sort of limited to the part of the image where the, the satellite actually appeared for the most part. Our new paper takes a completely different view of that subject and instead asks, what is the collective contribution from all of these things in the sky, some of which individually aren't bright enough to detect, but they're still contributing light that's coming through the atmosphere back down to us on Earth. And we found that it's raising the background level of the sky itself by about 10% over what we assume is a natural background that's set mostly by processes in the Earth's atmosphere. 
And that to us was a very startling result. We did not expect a number that was so high. And furthermore, that's a lower limit. And I say that because that was on the assumption of there were only a few thousand objects in orbit around the Earth as of about 2019 before the Starlink launch. And we know that over time, given the plans of various satellite operators, that that number of objects will increase. And if we run those kind of numbers through our model, we see increases in the night sky brightness. Uh, and so I think it, it, it really changes the nature of the conversation that we've had so far with both the astronomy community and the satellite operators, getting them to think about what is the overall contribution to the brightness of the night sky and not simply focusing on where are these bright streaks that are running through these astronomical images. And many of our, our listeners are astro images. And so they're, they are well aware of this effect of having a, a bright satellite passing through and ruining your image. But is that sort of pollution a big problem for professional observatories? It is a problem for the professional observatories, um, in part because obviously they can see fainter things than most amateur astrophotographers. Um, they tend to look at smaller parts of the sky at once, which is actually a benefit because if you know where all of the objects are, if you have good orbital elements for the satellites and pieces of debris, you can use software to tell you when there is uh, an object that will pass through the field of view of your scientific instrument, and you can simply close the shutter for a few seconds, or you can avoid a particular part of the sky. But much like the amateur astrophotographers, especially who do deal with landscapes, so you're looking at a very wide field of view at once, you don't have the luxury of simply avoiding where the satellites are. And the new generation of large um, sky surveys, for example, the Vera Rubin Observatory that is scheduled to come online in a couple of years, um, it becomes inevitable at a certain point. And the science team at Vera Rubin did an estimate that they published recently suggesting that under current circumstances with what we anticipate for launches throughout the next decade, that they could lose on order of about 1% of their science pixels to satellites. Um, when a satellite passes through one of their images, obviously they lose anything that's underneath it, right? They, it competes with the light of the stars. They're going to lose the scientific information that's in that light. There was concern early on when these satellites were, um, were very bright before SpaceX began undertaking uh, design changes to reduce the reflectivity of the satellites, that the trails could be so bright that they would cause something called crosstalk between different parts of the detector. And it's almost like a ghost image. You have a satellite trail over here in one part of the image, but somewhere else you have residual signal that is interpreted as light. And so uh, this was alarming. And it, it set off the conversation with the uh, uh, satellite operators that led SpaceX, for example, to start making design changes to try to make their satellites less bright. Uh, and so they set a limit of seventh magnitude, which corresponds to the naked eye limit of the night sky, if they could get the brightness at a maintained level down below that cutoff, Vera Rubin decided that it, it was an acceptable amount of loss that they could deal with. Uh, and if they can get there, it sort of makes everybody happy, but it doesn't make the problem completely go away. And now this is a kind of the background glow that you're talking about from the, the cumulative effect of satellites. That's an entirely different problem that these uh, observatories have to deal with. Is it a problem that they can deal with? In a sense, it is a problem that they can deal with. 
it's kind of an inconvenience is the best way I would put it. If you want to achieve a certain limiting brightness of objects in your image and you have a telescope of a given size and you want to achieve uh, a certain amount of intensity in the signal of whatever it is that you're trying to detect, one way that you can do that is just by exposing longer. So if you run your exposure longer, you get more photons from the object that you care about. The noise in the background kind of suppresses itself because it averages out. But there's a trade-off, of course. If you are observing something that's very faint, it may take many hours of exposure to get to that amount of signal. And by making the background higher, it requires that the exposure be even longer. So it will take more time, more hours of time, to get to the same result that you would have had if the background sky brightness were not quite as high. And so you can still achieve your science goals, but it will take you longer to get there. And as a consequence, for a given amount of observing time, you may simply be able to observe fewer objects. So it is a, and it's an impediment, but it's not an obstacle that cannot be overcome. It just changes the calculation in terms of how much telescope time is required to generate a sufficient amount of scientific data to answer any particular question. And is the the light pollution that gets scattered off these satellites, is it different to the kind of light pollution that you get from artificial sources on Earth? Yes and no. Uh, And I say that because the ultimate mechanism is really the same. If we're on the, the Earth and we're talking about sources of light on the ground, we see that in the night sky after that light goes up into the sky, scatters off of of particles in the atmosphere, whether they're dust or water molecules or whatever, and that light is scattered back down to the ground. And it has the effect of raising this background in the same way that I was just describing with the satellites. And it lowers the contrast between objects of astrophysical interest and that background. And the contrast between light and dark is what helps us detect those things, whether we're using our eyes or whether we're using electronic detectors. Um, so it's it's fundamentally the same sort of thing. It's changing the background level with respect to the brightness of the things that we're trying to sense. What our study did not take into account was the tendency of the light coming from satellites to scatter through the atmosphere on its way down to the ground. We're interested in maybe doing a follow-up study that will add in that effect. The atmosphere will absorb some of that light, just like it absorbs starlight, the same process but it also will scatter some of it. So if you're at a given location and looking at a particular part of the sky, that atmospheric scatter will tend to add light in the direction that you're looking, even if it was emitted in a different direction. So there's probably a a balance there where some of the light will be absorbed on the way through, and that will diminish the impact of the satellites. But the scattered component will kind of put that back at at a, a certain level And so we can't rely on the atmosphere to take care of the problem for us. So from the perspective of an observer on the ground, when you're looking up through the atmosphere towards your your astronomical object, it's the sum of all these contributions. And as far as the sky is concerned, they don't care where they come from because ultimately the behavior is the same. Uh, And you touched there on exactly how much it would affect on Earth because 10% that is a lot higher number than I was expecting, and it sounds like a lot. But how will that actually affect people if they're just looking with their naked eye or even through a telescope or a set of binoculars? That is a great question, Ezzy, and it's one that we have struggled with a little bit. We think, 
that the average observer right now, you went to a very dark location, probably will not notice this effect. And the reason is that there are sources of light, particularly in the Earth's atmosphere, that are natural in origin. They have to do with the physics and chemistry of the upper atmosphere that are emitting visible light are more significant contributors of light than this effect. So whereas we're saying that the satellites might be contributing something like 10% above the background, the processes in the atmosphere that are generating light may be an order of magnitude higher. They could be 50% or, or higher than that. And so if you've got large variations up here at the 50% or more level, and then you have the steady contribution down at 10%, you probably won't see it. And I've been asked, you know, how do we know that our model is correct? Because if we're down here on Earth and I'm telling you that the atmosphere is contributing more light than satellites, how would we ever possibly sense that signal? And the short answer is, that's right. We can't really disentangle those things. And the complicating factor on top of it is that the atmosphere is emitting light uh, at a level that varies through time, and the time scale can be just minutes. So you have this bright thing that's varying, and you have the steady lower thing in the background that's not varying. One way that we might be able to do that is by getting above the atmosphere. And it's been suggested we might get some observations maybe made from the International Space Station that are just above the atmosphere, but below where most of the satellites are. And we would take out that natural contribution. So the short answer is probably this is not something that will make any difference right now for the benefit of people who are just casually looking at the night sky. They won't really notice it so much. It might be the case that they don't quite see as many stars as they would have otherwise. But I'm more concerned about five or 10 years from now, if there are 100,000 new satellites orbiting the Earth that are not there right now, and our model predicts that the contribution above the background becomes significantly higher, does it start to impact what stargazers see? It very well could. And it's simply going to make it harder to see faint stars. Kind of touches on my next question of, um, will this start affecting orbital um, stations? Because at the moment, Hubble is about 550 kilometers above Earth, which is about the same place where most of the Starlink satellites are going. But there are plans to launch higher altitude Starlink satellites. So is this something that, that even space-based observatories are going to have to start worrying about? I would say that it is already a concern for space-based observatories because I am aware of at least one Hubble Space Telescope image that was taken in 2019 that has a Starlink trail through it because Starlink is just above where Hubble orbits. And so if it's looking in the wrong direction at the wrong time, Starlink being above it, there is the potential for a streak passing through an image. And we, we already know of at least one instance, and I would imagine that there probably are others in the Hubble archive. Uh, you're correct in saying that most of the satellites that are intended to be launched will be at higher orbits. We identified last um, year in a an effort that was led by our U.S. National Science Foundation and the American Astronomical Society, we held a conference called SATCON-1 that looked into some of these issues and one of the conclusions from that workshop was that above about 600 kilometers or so, you're in sunlight for almost all of a satellite's orbit, especially during the summer months. And as a result, it will be illuminated all night long. So for some of the operators that are looking at launching up to about 1,000 or 1,200 kilometers, and particularly at higher latitudes and in the summer, those satellites are going to be there all night. And they're going to be above our space-based observatories for the most part so that they will be impacted by them. 
Uh, and of course, this this doesn't even yet get into the whole business of whether uh, there's an increased risk of collisions between these satellites and other objects that have the potential to generate even more debris. And our model for the diffuse brightness of the night sky takes into account the full distribution of object sizes from fully functional operating satellites down to small pieces of debris. And all of that is scattering light down towards the Earth or towards those space-based observatories that are in lower orbits. Uh, and if we do see a big spike in the amount of debris, it's certainly going to cause the background brightness to come up even faster than we anticipate right now. Because as you said, you mentioned it's it's 10% is the level that you think the brightness is at now. Um, and there are tens of thousands of these satellites being predicted to be launched over the next couple of years. Have you modeled how much you think that's going to increase this this issue? We haven't specifically asked that question, although the model could very well handle something like that because the, the distribution of numbers of objects of different sizes and some of the characteristics of those objects, like their reflectivity, is something that we can freely change in the model. So if we could construct a sample distribution for what we think that the sizes and numbers might be in 10 years, we could feed it into the same mathematics and turn the crank and out would come a better estimate. Uh, we don't yet know what that is. And it's in part because we haven't built that model of the size and number distribution. We're trying to get some more technical data from the satellite operators to tell us about the, the brightnesses because satellites and other pieces of you know, debris are complex objects, geometrically speaking. They have a lot of surfaces that reflect light and it, and there we treat them simply like they were spheres, like they were just mirror-like spheres as a sort of first order approximation in the model. Um, but we could get increasingly detailed about the way these things tend to reflect light and we would get towards a progressively more realistic result. So I hesitate to quote a number, not knowing yet what that distribution is going to look like. But again, that 10% figure that we quoted, that is a lower limit. And that applied even before the first Starlink launch in 2019. So that was everything up to that point. So we know that by putting more things into orbit, it's only going to get higher with time. And is anything being done to, to mitigate this issue and stop it from getting worse? There is an ongoing effort of dialogue between the private space industry and the astronomical community uh, internationally. We now have most of the major operators who intend to put large satellite constellations at the table talking to us. Um, my organization is represented, even though we're not uh, necessarily strictly about astronomy, but we do represent a large contingent of people who are uh, either amateur astronomers, astrophotographers, stargazers, and I should add also, there's a whole segment of the world population, especially in indigenous societies, where the night sky figures prominently uh, for either cultural or religious purposes. And so the ability to see the stars is part of their cultural or religious practice. So we're trying to, to bring some of that to this discussion as well. And um, there are operators like SpaceX who have been making design changes, like I mentioned earlier, to try to make their objects less reflective of light. And there is some evidence that they've made progress on that front, although they are not quite at their self-imposed 
a goal of trying to reduce the objects below the brightness uh, that's sufficient to be seen with the unaided eye. Um, there's not a lot that can be done for the effect that we're talking about in our paper. You can reduce the brightness of the streaks as they're seen in individual images, and that might get down to the point that, for example, uh, Vera Rubin is no longer impacted severely as far as loss of science. Uh, but again, because we look at it from a different perspective, which is how much is it raising the background level of the sky? And the reflectivity of the satellites is part of that, and reducing that reflectivity will certainly lower the uh, impact of the diffuse sky brightness, um, but it doesn't eliminate it. And again, if we have this cascade of debris from collisions, if that increases, uh, that's also going to be hard to mitigate because you have no control over what that looks like. You can't control the sizes and shapes of objects that are produced in collisions. Um, if we really wanted to tackle this problem, the only way to do it would be to reduce the number of objects orbiting the Earth. And it may be for the satellite operators that that's a non-starter because that's an obvious challenge to their business model. But to be fair, the only way of, of really avoiding this problem would be to simply have fewer objects launched and orbiting our planet. Now, it's all been a bit doom and gloom so far with, with light pollution and, and things, but there is a lot of work that the uh, International Dark Sky Association does to help promote and celebrate dark skies. So what have you been up to in the last couple of years to, to help that promotion and celebration? Well, we have been a, a grassroots organization from our founding, and it really is our view that the most likely way of achieving the change that we want to see is by stimulating a conversation with the public and bringing the public around to the idea that natural darkness at night is a natural resource that is both threatened as well as worth preserving. And we go about that in a number of ways through grassroots advocacy, making people aware of the problem, but also making them aware of the fact that there are um, very reasonable, technically feasible, practical, cost-effective solutions to this. Again, the focus being lighting on the ground. We have a great deal of control over that. And by improving that lighting, not eliminating it, that's not the goal, but by improving the nighttime light that we already use, I think we would find that we needed less of it to get the job done. And we would actually be improving nighttime visibility so even for people whose concern is not the night sky or these other subjects that we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, if they're just concerned about their own well-being when they're outside at night, they should be concerned about better visibility. And that's what we're aiming to achieve. And if we do that and we reduce the amount of light that's being used altogether, we also reduce the amount that's being wasted. And that's some fraction of the light that we use that either goes up into the night sky or it's it shines into environmentally sensitive areas, you know, parks and forests and places like that where the light isn't even needed. And really what this requires is that people think differently about our relationships as humans to all of this artificial light, which arrived so late in the game. We've only been putting this light into the environment for a little over 100 years that the environment and especially the biology that's in it really hasn't had time to react or adapt to that situation. So a lot of what we do is raise awareness about the issue. We work with the lighting manufacturing industry to encourage them to make better lighting products. We try to educate the public to make better choices about lighting. We work with policymakers and decision makers to try to put in place better public policies around the use of outdoor light at night. 
Uh, and we work with the conservation community as well to help promote a sense of best practice in conservation to where alongside concerns for air quality and water quality and the things that are, are monitored in sensitive locations like parks, that those conservation professionals are also monitoring and concerning themselves with light pollution and that they think of it as uh, every bit as serious a challenge as those other sources of pollution. So we're really trying to build a movement from the ground up. And I think every year we, we get closer and closer to our goal as more people come on board and they realize that there's a lot to be gained and very little to lose by just thinking differently about how we're using all of this artificial light at night. Um, absolutely. And as the world is opening up more, um, hopefully some of our listeners will take the opportunity to, to get out there and, and experience what a truly dark sky feels like. To find a list of all the dark sky sites that have been accredited by the IDA around the UK, you can visit www.skyatnightmagazine.com. Or for those throughout the world, you can check out www.darksky.org. Thank you very much for taking the time out of your day to talk to us, to John. Um, I'm sure a lot of people are feeling slightly worried, but hopefully we'll, we'll help get out there and enjoy the dark skies that we do have. Thank you very much for having me on the program today, Ezzy. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy Podcast from the makers of BBC Sky Night Magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Brittany Colley. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skynightmagazine.com or head to iTunes, Acast, Spotify or your favourite podcast provider.